A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming up on this edition of the Golf Central Podcast presented by TaylorMade, we are going to talk about Nick Taylor's victory at Pebble Beach, signs of life from Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth, and we're going to look at a stacked field that will gather at Riviera Country Club for the Genesis Invitational. Welcome into the Golf Central Podcast presented by TaylorMade and the all-new Sim Driver. The driver head was in need of a drastic change in order to provide more performance, so TaylorMade changed the shape altogether with their new SIM driver, which allowed them to make it fast and forgiving where every golfer needs it, the downswing. The pros love the new shape, but the biggest reason TaylorMade changed the the shape was to help make you into a better golfer. Check out TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information on the all-new SIM family. And with that, I'm Will Gray. Welcoming in my partner in crime, Rex Hoggard. Rex, it was a, uh, a windy Sunday at Pebble Beach. Kind of an interesting finish to things. Nick Taylor getting his second PGA Tour win. But what stood out most for you from the week that was at Pebble? Can I can I take a moment and sort of color outside the lines here? Do you you go right ahead. You take as much time as you I want. Have, uh, I have a confession to make. I, uh-huh. I was wrong. I have apologies to issue. I have swords to fall on. Whatever it is we want to say, I... I Went outside the box last week and yes, took David did. Duvall over Jordan Spieth. We're going to talk about Jordan Spieth. He shoots his first or his lowest Sunday round since the playoffs last year, 67, to move up into the top 10, which is a huge jump for him. And Duvall withdrew after an opening round, 84. So apologies to both players and listeners. And uh, I'm sure I'll say something ridiculous again <laughs> this week. But I'll, I'll keep going. Yes, it's, we're going to have that as a running segment. Rex falling on his sword after a failed prediction. Uh, you, you have to own it. Uh, it was a fun Sunday, actually, going back and, and watching it this morning because I wanted to see it again just because of how difficult the golf course was. We're not used to seeing Pebble Beach play like a true links course like they wanted to or something closer to a true links course. It was hard and fast and bouncy, and then you add gust to 20, 25 miles an hour, and you saw it. I mean, from the leaders all the way down, how difficult it was, and if you made some birdies, guys made up ground, and it, it was was a fun final round to watch. Yeah, it was interesting to see Nick Taylor hold on there. Pretty much had a three-hole stretch there. He goes birdie, birdie, eagle, four through six, and then he held on for dear life for the next 12 holes. Didn't really feel much of a, of a challenge as that back nine played tough, but but it was kind of like a bounce-back week for a lot of guys. We've mentioned Phil, who has now finished third two straight weeks, Saudi Arabia and Pebble, quite a unique uh, exacta there. 
But you got Jordan Spieth getting back in the top ten, as you mentioned, to 67 on Sunday. He sneaks into the, the Mexico field by making it back into the top 50. Not sure if he's going to play Mexico or not. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but then you also have Jason Day back in there, who was, who was right on the cusp of falling outside the top 50. He finishes inside the top 10 as well. Those are three guys that all came into this event really needing to show something to get a little bit of momentum as the West Coast swing starts to wrap up, and all three found what they were looking for. It was kind of redemption week for all of them, all the way across the board. And I thought it was fascinating hearing some of the stories about Jason Day talking last week that there was a time last year when he thought he might be done, that the injuries had just kind of yeah. taken their toll. And and it's, it's hard to believe because it wasn't that long ago we felt like we were talking about him being number one in the world and him being the perfect combination of Roy McIlroy and Jordan Spieth, the way he could putt when he was on. And to see what the injuries did to him that he wasn't able to function. And it's just, it was sad to be quite honest with you, because he was such a talent. He, he's one of the most genuine guys on tour. And it was, it, even on Sunday, you could tell, I don't think he had his best stuff. We talked about how difficult the conditions were. He closes with a 75. But I even think he takes something from that going forward that he can build on. I mean, I think all three of those guys took something huge out of that week, simply because they all needed big weeks. And for them to put it together and on the same Sunday, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I agree. It was it was jarring looking at their their world rankings for, for Jason Day and Jordan Spieth. Starting the week, they were at 46 and 55. Now they both made some jumps. Phil Mickelson moves up to 55th, which does not get him back in to the Mexico field. He still has another chance with a big week this week at Riviera, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it is interesting how these WGC work in that he won the event two years ago mm. and he's still not, not in. You really have to earn your keep to, to stay inside that rotation for the WGCs. But I want to spend a minute and talk quickly about Nick Taylor, the guy that actually won the golf tournament. and It is, it is win number two. He had won the Sanderson Farms as a rookie back in 2014. But I think it's, it's interesting to see how sometimes you see those guys that feel like they need to validate a win in the opposite field events that even last week with, with Tony Fino I found an interesting stat that no one that's won in Puerto Rico has gone on to win any other event on the PGA Tour huh? you have yeah. one guy Michael Bradley who won Puerto Rico again but no one has won any other event and and so you sometimes you fall into that that situation with these opposite field events where guys have the win you get the two-year exemption but then you feel the need to prove it again Nick Taylor proved it in a big way on Sunday and I don't want to fall in. I, we had this conversation last week about undervaluing a win on the PGA Tour. It's hard to win on the PGA Tour, even in an opposite field event. But to your point, I think, and it's just not that this isn't an opposite field event. It's that he started going head-to-head with Phil Mickelson, right. who has owned this golf course. He's the defending champion. Everything about this Sunday said, yes, there's no way that Taylor gets it done. And for him to do what he did, you pointed out, he goes birdie, birdie, eagle, to really give himself some separation. But when was the last guy a guy made a seven? on the back nine, <laughs> and wins on the PGA Tour. I mean, it happens between you and I a lot. It does. One of sometimes good, sevens win the hole. Sometimes sevens do win the hole. But in this particular situation, and watching the final round, he didn't have his best stuff. You could tell he got quick. He loves to play that fade, and he was going over, you know, he was snapping it left quite a bit off the tee and really opened the door for Phil and Jason Day and even Kevin Stroman and the rest of them. And for him to kind of grind it out there at the end, and, and no one really stepped in. I mean, Stroman yeah. had a good final round. Uh, Jordan Speak, we talked about, he started way too far back. I don't think Jason Day had his best stuff coming down the stretch either. But finished with two closing birdies coming down the stretch, and, and it was solid. And I don't know that he needed vindication. I don't know that anybody really needs it after you've won once on the PGA Tour. But this is one you'll look back, and the next time he's in a similar situation, we'll remember that, oh, yeah, he stared down Phil Mickelson on Sunday at Pebble Beach. What is it about this tournament or this course or this, this format, maybe with the amateurs, that allows for a, a David versus Goliath situation? You look back over the last five years, Vaughn Taylor went head-to-head with Phil and beat him. Mm. Ted Potter went head-to-head with DJ when he was world number one and beat him. And now you have Nick Taylor in the final group with Phil, and, and he— 
blows the doors off him over the, over that front nine. It's it's not a situation that you really expect going into the event, but time and again you see this course. It's got a little bit of quirkiness to it, especially when the wind comes up, which we all enjoy. But but it has been a spot where you've seen some underdogs that were able to shine. And I think a lot of that is the golf course, particularly this Sunday when you saw how difficult it was and guys were having to. These are the, the smallest greens by fifty percent on the PGA Tour, and then you factor in twenty mile an hour winds, and I think that effectively makes them that much smaller. So it's going to be that much more demanding. I think there's something to be said for the format. I mean, mm-hmm. watching the guys this weekend, and it sort of keeps you a little bit probably more loose, particularly these underdogs that we're talking about, the Nick Taylors of the world, the Ted Potters of the world, that you have a an amateur, whether if that's one up on the celebrity side, or I think we saw it yesterday with Kevin Stroman and Larry Fitzgerald. Yep. I mean, they genuinely like to play with each other. And I'm sure at some point it helps Stroman take his mind off the idea that, man, I could actually win this tournament and maybe keeps him a little bit more loose. The combination of those two things. Uh, I would be remiss before we move on if we didn't mention Larry Fitzgerald, uh, who has now teamed with Kevin Streelman to win the amateur portion of this twice in the That's last year. That's never three happened years. before, right? Uh, he's the, I think he's the third or fourth. It's happened, they, it's happened a couple times, but not that many. But my, my fascination with this, two years ago he plays as a 13, and they, they win going away. This week he plays an 8, so he shaved five shots. They've taken five shots off his number. They still win. I assume next year he's going to show up as a 2 and be, <laughs> and be going toe-to-toe with Jake Owen and Kelly Slater. But uh, listen, the Cardinals wide out. He can golf his ball. Are you, are you going to step to the first tee? And look him in the eye. I mean, you're going to have to look up, obviously, because yeah, he's up. a large man. Yes. And, and Sam back, you're going to call that? You're going to claim pencil whipped no, on the first tee? No, you, I'm more— As an 8 or 2 or a 13, whatever the case may be. I think clearly with, with the margin that they won by 13 was a little high a couple years ago. I think they won by 7 or 8 shots. Uh, the 8 seemed about right, and I think it helps when it's, it when your playing partner as the pro finishes second in the tournament overall. Sure. That gives you a little bit of a boost. It's not like Kevin Streelman's finishing 55th and winning the amateur portion of the Pro-Am. Uh, but I, I think that, that we'll see his number get trimmed next year if, when the when they come back to defend it, whether that's from the rounds he's playing out at Whisper Rock or whether that's you know the, the tournament committee showing up and wagging their pencil and saying, whoa, 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 hold on here. Well, just imagine what's going to happen. I mean, he's not going to retire until he's well into his 60s, it looks like, at this rate because he just <laughs> wants to keep on playing. But imagine what happens when he retires. I mean, we see— I know. I kind of saw it last week from the Manning brothers, particularly Peyton, because I have followed Peyton in a pro-am before at the Memorial a few yep. years ago. And, uh, and he, he had a near miss there with Peyton once. He right? did, yeah, yeah. And it, it, his ball was down in the rough, and I happened to find it, and I kind of looked, and I said, Titleist, I don't know, 17? And he kind of stands behind me, and that would be 12. <laughs> of course it would be 12. Uh, but uh, watching those guys, Peyton played terrible. Now that he's had some time off, both of them are, well, Eli as yes. well. They've got, they've got plenty of free time. Eli's got some time to catch up on on brother Peyton on the, <laughs> the handicap world. Uh, all right, well, let's let's shift our attention because it is a big week uh, coming up this week at, in L.A. at Riviera, the Genesis Invitational. It's a, a revamp format, you know, a smaller field now. Uh, but, you know, you were out at Torrey Pines a couple weeks ago. That felt like the unofficial start of the 2020 season. If that wasn't it, this certainly is. You've got yeah. nine out of the top ten players in the world. Only Webb Simpson, recent winner in Phoenix, is, is sitting out among the top ten. You've got Tiger in the field as a tournament host and player. You've got Rory McIlroy as world number one for the first time since 2015. Uh, any storyline you, you can imagine in the early season is going to be there for the taking. It's going to be a fantastic week to watch. Well, and we've, we've raked this around. I mean, I think all of us have sat and tried to figure out where Tiger's going to get number 83. Right? I mean, he's going to get that 83rd yep. victory somewhere. We, we all assume it's going to be this season. We all assume it's probably going to be before the Masters. So we've all kind of thrown the ideas out. Now, it's probably not going to be here. It probably is not going to be here, but imagine the synergy. This yes. is where he played in his very first PGA Tour event as a 16-year-old amateur. 
and he was probably 89 pounds soaking wet back in 1992. For him to get 83 here would be pretty cool. That ignores all of the facts that he is 0 for 13 in this event, which I think is the highest, right? Yes, yes. He, is, he has played no other course more times than Riviera without ever winning, and he really hasn't been that close. It, which is amazing because you would think, particularly where his game is now, where he, I don't want to say he's playing small ball, but he he could work his way around a golf course. For example, the way he played Royal Melbourne during the President's Cup. Mm-hmm. He still has that ability to do what he did at Royal Liverpool at the Open that year where he can put it in the right spots, essentially. And you would think that Riv would be that perfect scenario for him, and it just hasn't turned out to be that way. Now, I will go back to one thing that I noticed last year, and even though he was nowhere near close to winning last year in L.A., it was such a, a litmus test for him, I think, personally and mentally, because there were a lot of starts and a lot of stops during that week. I covered that event, and there yep. was a lot of late-night finishes and early morning tee times, and you're in between rounds because of so many delays and, and whatnot. And for him to do that, coming off back surgery, he didn't know how his back was going to respond, asking a lot of a guy who's coming off back surgery to do that in cold temperatures, and he played solid. He ended up finishing inside the top 20, and I think mentally, that was a huge hurdle for him last year. Yeah, I think when you look at what he did after that, that would definitely sure. checked off one of the boxes. I remember being out there talking about that final round that started at 6.30 or 7 o'clock yeah. local time, and he said he was having to set the alarm clock for basically 2 in the morning to, to get up, to do his stretching, to get ready, to, to be able to be on the team and play golf at that time. Do you early. buy in 2 a.m.? You know, he's, he's, he's a light sleeper anyway. So, uh, yeah, I if so. I remember correctly, you and I had to wake up about 3 a.m. because of the traffic. Well, well there is not much, there's not much traffic at 3 a.m., but there's still some because <laughs> it is LA after all. Uh, but yeah, this is, you know, you, you talked about him playing small ball and how it, it might be a course where you would think that that would be a viable strategy. But really, this has been a course where the, the bombers have thrived. You look in recent years, Bubba, Bubba has won three times. Mm-hmm. Dustin Johnson crushes this course. J.B. Holmes last year. Justin Thomas has been in the mix a couple times. This is a place that, that more often than not rewards the guys. It's just how some of those longer par fours are setting up. They're able to take different angles. They're able to hit, you know, uh, hitting it an eight iron versus a six iron makes a big difference at Riviera when you're talking about hitting into those greens and the segments of those greens when it really necessarily necessitates that you you put your ball in the right pocket not only on the green but uh you know it's it's just been a course where tiger has struggled and, and we have seen a tendency in the last four or five six years of you need to be able to knock it really far out there to have a chance you would think so and you just going through the top 10 last year so jb holmes wins jt was second if i remember correctly at 75 in the final round really yeah. killed him i mean he had an opportunity there rory was right there adam scott dustin johnson so even though we, we always point to, and this comes on the heels of last week's distance survey, I mean, distance insights report uh, project, and we always point to number 10 at Riviera as the perfect example, that holes don't have to be longer, they just have to be better designed, and that's, right. the, that's the greatest part for, it, it, you know, in the world, and it's only 300 and something yards. Like, it's, it should be that difficult for them, but it's always entertaining to sit and watch. But you're right, it's 7,300 yards, but it's right there at sea level. That, it, it's a lot of golf course. Yeah, for sure, and especially once you get into that rough and that, that kikuyu and the, the club starts to snag really fast, and and it does make a difference in terms of what iron you're hitting in in for the approach. But as you said, you mentioned Justin Thomas was there last year and Rory as well. McElroy back to number one in the world, first time since 2015, is almost five years in between stints as world number one. You've got Brooks Kepka at two, John Rahm at three, who can also get to world number one with a victory. It, more likely than not, the scenario is going to play out that Rory is going to keep it for at least one more week. But, but who do you think of those three guys is going to have the best time in L.A.? 
Well, first off, it's the greatest drinking game ever, right? Anytime someone gets the world number one Scenarios. sitting on their couch, I there mean, it, you can just keep going on and on. So, yeah, I don't think anybody was celebrating, certainly not Rory that week. But I, I think if you're going to point to anyone, and, and we had this conversation last week, and it's such a small sample size, and Brooks is not off to a great season. For whatever reason, he's coming off injuries, tinkering with drivers, whatever the case may be. I just don't see this that sustainable for him. I think he's going to con- start preparing now for that first major like we've seen him do time and time again and it's going to be i envision those two going through the the roundabout door see i think it's it's more than those two i I, I I think think it is too but i mean you told me to just to stand up and if i had to pick one up and look john rom has played great jt's played great um dj is the one that i have a hard time seeing and only not because he doesn't have the ability to overpower courses or still win but it's because of those other four guys ahead of them that when they're on their best game I'm not 100% sure at this stage DJ can beat them. Yeah, I tend to agree with you that, that Dustin is a step behind. I mean, I think if I'm creating an, an eye test world ranking, I'm actually going to put John Rahm and Justin Thomas in my 1-2 slot right now. I think that they're even ahead of, of Rory and Brooks, that they're playing the best golf in the world right now. Now, mathematically, they've got a bit of a gap that they need to make up to catch up to, to Rory and Brooks in terms of actually getting to the number one ranking. But I do think that Dustin is a step behind. And I know from talking to Justin Thomas a couple weeks ago in Phoenix, he was reminiscing about how in 2018 when he had the world number one ranking that it was this revolving door where it wasn't just two it was four five six guys at any given point can take the top spot with a good week and i think that we're trending back into that into that situation i think that's certainly an exciting prospect and you know we haven't even mentioned xander of course he's sixth in the world right now he just keep going down that list patrick Xander's nine so i uh, Cantley. There you go. Six. Uh, so you keep going down that list, and I just think the number of guys, and it's going to depend on who goes on one of those runs. And yep. I remember Rory being sort of at the beginning stages of one of those runs at this point last season where he puts himself into contention in L.A., doesn't work out, puts himself into contention in Mexico, gets run over by DJ, but he kept giving himself an opportunity, which kind of paid off at the Players' Championship and further on down the season. I can envision one of those guys doing the exact same thing, whether that's Rory or Brooks or JT or whoever the case may be. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think that a year ago we were talking about does Rory have the closing gene basically he was he was coming up with thirds and fourths and fifths and we, by the time we got up around to Bay Hill it was like well can he really close out a tournament and yeah I think he, he found a way <laughs> he can figure it out he, he figured it out pretty quickly uh, you know if, if last week was this redemption week and you had big results from Phil and Spieth and Jason Day is there anyone that you look at when you when you see this field and it is pretty much the best field so far in, in 2020 by the numbers is there anyone that you look at that you might feel has a little bit of pressure to perform. I know we mentioned Phil is still outside the top 50. He needs to get into the top 50 in order to make the WGC Mexico Championship, which is next week. But is there anyone else, or even Phil included, that that you feel like might be under the gun? Well, I think Jason Day needs to continue to take that step in that right direction. I mean, last week was a huge step, and I think it's going to give him a lot of confidence. But to be that player he wants to be, he doesn't want to have one good week and then three bad weeks. So it's an opportunity. And again, it's a golf course we talk about where power seems to play. It's a golf course that, in theory, should kind of suit him. And Brooks, I mean, he hasn't played on the PGA Tour, at least so far this year. Uh, didn't uh, have his best stuff in the Middle East. But I, there, I didn't have any alarm bells, simply because there's all, so many other factors that go into this. And I think when you talk about the injury, coming off surgery, obviously he was tinkering with some drivers, putter grip, whatever the case may be. All of those things. I think he was doing it the perfect time because I had a chance to talk with Claude Harmon, his swing coach, last week. He didn't have an offseason. 
So right. he essentially had to spend the three months of the offseason sitting on the couch trying to rehab. So he's going to have to use these first couple events to make sure everything's tuned up, whether that's body or equipment. So he would be the guy, I think, if he can come out, not necessarily win, but put himself in contention and start feeling the juices again. It is amazing to think that Brooks Kepka hasn't played four rounds in the U.S. since August. You got to go back to the tour championship. He missed the cut in Vegas. He withdrew at, in in Korea. He had the, the injury, as you mentioned. But a lot has happened since we last saw Brooks in the U.S., kind of at the height of his powers. And clearly, Rory McIlroy, who put that target on his back and said, "Listen, I I'm making no bones about it. I want to catch Brooks. I want to get back to world number one." He was able to not only you know. Yes, Brooks had some downtime. He's been slow to get back, but Rory made the most of that opportunity, and now he is back to world number one. I, I agree with you that there was probably no celebrating on the couch as the uh, as he's refreshing the page, but I think that as, as long as he gets one week under his belt and he stays world number one going into next week, I think there is something to be said from a confidence perspective for Rory to say, listen, I got back to the top of the mountain. I stated that goal. I achieved it, and now we're ready to con- continue to move on. Everyone knows how big of a deal a guy is for him. He's. I think he's trying to, you know, maybe outfox himself in, in terms of strategy of, of what he needs to do to solve the Masters riddle, including now adding the Valero Texas Open. He's going to play his way in this year for the first time since 2013. But I, I think in terms of the mental makeup of this guy who's, who's golfing savant, I think that getting there, stating the goal and achieving it is a big deal. Well, and I'm really curious. I mean, Rory... Brooks, DJ, they all say the right thing when they get to world number one, that this is something that they wanted to achieve. That look, and you can't focus on it. It's all about the process, right? You can go down that right. that cliched crossroads. The results will take care of themselves, right? Exactly. If I play good golf, the rankings will take care of themselves. But here's what I'm I'm really curious, and, and we have talked about this revolving table of musical chairs and whoever's going to end up standing around when the music stops. If you actually... In their heart of hearts, I am curious. The, the modern player, and then we're talking about the Rory's and DJ's and Brooks's, the ones who have held it and then fallen back out and then held it again, how much it actually means to them. Because I would argue that if you ask Phil Mickelson, yep. does it bother you that you never held world number one? That's probably not even in his top 10 of things that bother him throughout the course of his Hall of Fame career. So I just don't know what it means to players. They, they, they build these arbitrary deadlines. For Jason Day, it was, I wanted to keep the world number one ranking for you know, an entire year. And for, for Justin Thomas, I want to keep it for more than one week, whatever the case may be. I'm just not quite sure what it means. I, I think the bigger deal is, and you saw this from Rory last season, where his demeanor did not change. When he came up short in L.A., he had the same outlook. When he came up short in Mexico, he had the same outlook. When he won at TPC Sawgrass, he had the same outlook. Yep. Nothing ever changed, which is why I thought he's due for a special season. So it's those guys that he doesn't care that he's world number one, particularly because he got it from the couch. Well, but it's also a, a byproduct, as we said, you know, cliches aside of, of the good play he's had over the last sure. five or six months and the wins that he he has racked up. But I do think it's interesting that you see some guys, including Jason Day, some guys that drift down, former world number ones, drift down to that 8, 10, 12 ranking, and they put it on the board, say, I want to get back to world number one, and they fall to 25th trying to get back to, to number one. And Rory was able to turn it back and get it in the right direction. Now, it helps to, to you know avoid injury and, and, and things like that, but but I do think that that he has found the secret sauce to be able to turn it around and, and get back, and it was a sizable gap that he faced against Brooks not too many months ago, and now all of a sudden they're basically tied at the top with Rory slightly ahead. Do you feel like there's a rivalry between them now? No. 
No, I think that we're uh, far far away from a rivalry. I need to see them in another final pairing. Uh, you know, I know that they played together in Memphis and at the Tour Championship, but I need to see it. I need to see it more. I need to see it back and forth, and uh, and we'll see. Well, in Memphis, having been there for that one, it, I did not feel like there was a rivalry. No. I feel like Brooks was playing at a different level than anyone in the game. That's not not a, a stab against Rory. And Rory was at a different level at Eastlake. Absolutely. So there's no there's no back and forth. I want to see one of them erase a, a two shot deficit on the back nine to to snag a trophy from the other one. That's that's what I need to see. And we just don't get it enough. I mean, we always wanted it from Phil and Tiger throughout yeah. the course of their career. We don't get these head to head Sunday matchups when it's when it really counts. Yeah. And I don't know that we're ever really going to get it from these two. I think it's going to continue to roll. And next thing you know, it'll be JT and Brooks or JT and Roy, whatever right. the case may be. It's simply the nature of the business now. Uh, now, I want to go back to something you mentioned a couple minutes ago about Phil and, and all of his you know, career results and what-ifs and how the world number one might not be high on the list. The U.S. Open is currently number one on the list, I would think, by a wide margin. How surprised were you to see Phil last week come out and say, even if I'm offered a special exemption to the U.S. Open this year, for which he, he's not currently qualified, he needs to stay in the top 60 in the world rankings. He moved up this week to 55th, but the cutoff isn't until May, so we got a long time to talk about this. But he went and got ahead of the story and said, listen, even if they ask me to prom, I'm going to say no, that he's not going to take a special exemption from the USGA to get in. He said, I need to qualify, whether that's making it through the world ranking, whether that's going to sectionals and flashing my calves for 36 holes on Monday after the Memorial. He's not doing that. He's going to, he's going to go about it the hard way. What did you make of that? Talk about playing coy. Yeah, I was actually – I was doing Golf Central that day when, when he did that press conference. And all of us in the newsroom started throwing things at TVs because you're thinking to yourself, I understand what you're trying to do. He is trying to play a middle game with himself. And he's trying to say, well, if I don't do it, then I don't deserve to be on the team. He essentially made the same comment about the U.S. Ryder right. Cup team, which I think is ridiculous. If he finishes 13th on the points, he's going to be a pick, and he probably should be a pick. I mean, we can sit here and debate where he should be or where he shouldn't be. That being said, for you to, to block this out, and let's face it, he and the USGA are not on the best of terms right now because of what happened at Shinnecock just a few years ago. And I think it's it's a bit of a stretch to just assume he's going to get that special invitation. He should. Because of his record and what he's right. done for the game and a Hall of Famer and six runner-up finishes in the national championship, I don't know if we should just immediately assume. However, if we are going to assume that, which is fair enough, this would be the year you would want to take it. He's 50 years old. He's not getting younger. Mm-hmm. You're going back to Wingfoot. If ever there was an opportunity for you to change the narrative and for you to bring your career full circle, this would be it. What's he going to hold off and wait for the special exemption for until he's 60? That's not going <laughs> to do him any good. So I understand what he's trying to do. It was just silly. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting because it allows you an opportunity to reflect on the on the notion that maybe the Phil U.S. Open USGA era is coming to a close. That that we are perhaps within reach of his final U.S. Open appearance. And and if you look back at recent history, it's it's like ending not with a bang but a whimper. You go at seventeen, he skips Aaron Hills in in very bizarre fashion, frankly. Mm-hmm. Eighteen, he does his stunt at Shinnecock, hitting the ball. 19 at Pebble Beach, he doesn't talk before before the tournament and doesn't really do much of anything during the tournament. And then you come around now at the thought of of him turning 50 the week of the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, where he finished second in this iconic fashion in 2006. And, him and the not, most dramatic yeah, finish ever. Yeah. And him not even being there, not even being in the field, it's, it's a remarkable concept. I still think, I expect him to make it. I think that he, he needs one or two more good weeks and he'll lock it up, but... I mean, it's an amazing concept. And, and when you look back at these last four, four or five years, how squirrely things have gotten between Phil and the one tournament that most got away from him. Well, and I think there is something, if you read between the lines a little bit during that exchange last week at Pebble Beach, and it 
I, there is some animosity, at least yeah. I think from Phil's point of view, talking about how they give these special exemptions out. And they are quite arbitrary. And you can sit here and make an argument that everyone who has gotten one deserves one. However, they don't give out two. And so you're only going to get one pass at this. And I, as we just argued, this is your best pass. Right. You need to make the most of it. And I don't think he's doing that. Yeah, I tend to agree. But we shall see. This, like I said, the cutoff's in May. He's got a few months to kind of figure things out. There will be many bombs hit between now and then. But uh, let's shift back to, to Genesis and Riviera, which, as we said, it's, it's a new format this year. It's, it's a smaller field, but a stacked field nonetheless. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Rex. David Duvall not playing. Who yeah, is who is your horse? Who do you think is going to be the guy that we're talking about a week from now? I, I think DJ comes out swinging. And again, this is an event where he plays well at. He feels comfortable. He spends a lot of time in Los Angeles. And I, I just think when it comes to this particular golf course and the way he's playing, and, and it, more so than Brooks, I think he came out for obvious reasons. There weren't, weren't any injuries and a little bit sharper. So I would expect him to have a solid start. I like that, even though the, the Sunday finish didn't quite go as he would have liked to pebble. Um, I'm going to go Justin Thomas. I, as I said, I think Rahm and JT are the two best players right now, uh, You know, not necessarily in the world rankings, but how they're playing right now. JT with three wins since August, finished third a couple weeks ago in Phoenix, admittedly not with his best stuff, was a runner-up last year at this event where he let it get away on Sunday, T9, the, week, or the year before. Uh, he likes this golf course. He knows it well. It's a course that favors guys that hit it long off the tee. I think he's going to get, get Just it for entertainment purposes only, because you are the go-to guy on this, where would you put Tiger's odds if we're just having fun season? Uh, I, would, I would probably put him him like around eighth to tenth of you know if you go you go Rory JT Rom DJ I would still like I would put Xander ahead of Tiger this week I might put Cantlay ahead of Tiger just because the golf course does not really seem to oh match for thirteen him. is oh for thirteen correct it yeah. speaks for itself and and I think and you know Tiger has the focus more so than any other player but there is still the element of being tournament host of doing some extra stuff on the side being there Monday for for the hit and giggle with the celebrities uh, you know I don't think that it's going to totally detract from what he needs to do Thursday through Sunday but between that the combined elements playing a golf course that isn't necessarily as well suited for him as some others that he likes to. Play. For whatever reason, and that, yeah. that's that's baffling to me because yeah. again, we look at this golf course, and he has played it enough. It's not as though he doesn't know what he, how to play the golf course. Right. He, he's spent enough time there, so it, it's baffling to me. Yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see. But I do, I agree with you. The eighty three is going to come this year. I think we would all agree. And we learned in two thousand nineteen. Stop doubting what Tiger Woods can do. And that being said, I still think it would be a surprise to see him get 83 this week at Riviera. I mean, it would be awesome. Again, this is where it all started. So for him to get to 83, it, I just don't see it happening. And if you could look down the road, there's so many other opportunities. I kind of picked Bay Hill. I'm not yeah. quite sure where I think we did this exercise a few weeks ago when we tried to figure out where he was going to get 83. Augusta certainly stands out as one you would probably pick him at. Right. I would agree. Mm. It, it, he'll get it sooner rather than later. Not sure it'll be this week. But I will tell you this, Rex, if he does... We'll have a lot to talk about a week from now. Well, in a week from now, we get to recap the West Coast swing. They're there you done. go. We're mm-hmm. shifting We're shifting east slowly. First we go to Mexico, and then two weeks from now, we'll be at the Honda Classic and, and back on East Coast time. But for Rex Hoggard, I'm Will Gray. Thanks for tuning in to this latest episode of the Golf Central Podcast presented by TaylorMade. We'll see you next week. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. 
Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.